Hello and welcome to the Hindu's In Focus podcast. I'm Anand Krishnan, the Hindu in Chennai, your host for today. India is navigating a world in flux. Relations between the US and China, already strained, have worsened during the COVID-19 pandemic and appear to be drifting towards an abyss. India and China are dealing with their own problems, with several flare-ups along the line of actual control. What does this changing global situation mean for India as it navigates a new world situation? We are lucky to be joined today by Jeff Smith, who is a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation in Washington. Jeff's work focuses on South Asia. He's the author and editor of Asia's Quest for Balance, China's Rise, and Balancing in the Indo-Pacific, and wrote an excellent book called Cold Peace, China-India Rivalry in the 21st Century. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's good to be here, Anand. Jeff, to start with, the India-China border, as you know, has been in the news, and it seems that India-China relations that had some sense of stability after the two summits in Wuhan and Chennai seem to be back into a familiar cycle. Mm. Before we get into the India-US-China dynamic, I just wanted to ask, have you been surprised by the flare-up in four different spaces at the same time, which seems to be fairly unusual? Yes, uh, I I found the flare-ups surprising. Um, as you noted, China and India relations have been on, you know, you would argue a more stable footing uh, since the Wuhan summit. I think there was general recognition after the 2017 Doklam crisis that both sides wanted to sort of move away from, from the brink, uh, from this period of elevated tensions. And while there was no real resolution of the underlying differences, there was some desire on both sides to move the relationship back toward a a more stable, cooperative framework. And, you know, I would say over the past year and a half or so, they had been largely successful in doing so. And with China under some level of duress, uh, both from unilateral actions by the Trump administration, the trade war with the Trump administration, but also under greater international scrutiny of COVID pandemic, Uh, you would not have guessed that it would be an opportune time for China to start making trouble on its land borders with India. Uh, There doesn't seem to be a great underlying logic or or rationale for this. Uh, The border had been relatively quiet over the past year or so. You know, reported Indian uh, Chinese incursions across the LAC were down in 2018, although there were some indications they may have risen again in 2019, but all of which is to say, yes, this, this did come as a, a bit of a surprise to me. We had Alice Wells, who's the outgoing top U.S. diplomat for South and Central Asia, saying on May 20th that the incidents at the border were a reminder that China's aggression wasn't just rhetoric, whether it was along the border with India or in the South China Sea. What's your sense of her comments? Do you think the U.S is concerned about what we may describe a pattern of Chinese behavior? Do you see the South China Sea posture by China as well as the boundary events linked in some way? No, I don't necessarily see them as linked. Um, You know, Ambassador Wells made, I think, a series of fairly robust comments yesterday, including uh, underscoring U.S. support for 
the McMahon line and for Indian sovereignty over Arunachal Pradesh, uh, these were not novel uh, positions. There's nothing new about them, but they're positions that U.S. officials have not always been clear about restating uh, in the past. I remember there was a stretch in the maybe mid to late 2000s where I was asking State Department officials, when was the last time the U.S. government has reiterated support for the McMahon line in Arunachal Pradesh? And it had been decades. Uh, now, there, there were two statements, I think, since then uh, in the early 2010s, one of them by a, a, a fairly lower level official. Um, so it's not insignificant to have uh, the, who was the acting assistant secretary of state, come out again on, on this question of Arunachal Pradesh. So that caught my eye. Um, and, and I think you're right to point out the sort of linking to Chinese actions at the border with its broader disposition, with its challenges to the rules-based order, with its actions in the South China Sea. That was, that was relatively new. And I'm a little hesitant to draw any connection among the different fronts because I do think China sort of calibrates its policies individually. I, I do think what's going on at the border is, is more, more likely a reflection of tactical moves and adjustments being made at the border and not something that China is coordinating sort of South China Sea activities. But I think her broader point, which does hold true, is that in, in an era where we're not fighting over territory anymore, where you don't have wars being fought to correct historical wrongs or to seize your neighbor's territory, there's one country that is continuously disruptive on these territorial questions, basically pushing the boundaries, uh, using gray zone coercion tactics along multiple fronts, and it's creating instability, whether it's in the South China Sea or the LAC. And it, it, in some ways, it doesn't matter whether they're linked. It's still generating friction with its neighbors uh, with assertive behavior. And that's a reminder to the world uh, that, you know, China's rise has really assumed a different trajectory since 2008. That's, I think, the broader point. Right. The other point uh, that she made, as you pointed out, was that in her view, China's recent behavior was causing other countries in the region to try and reinforce uh, the, the liberal order. She cited what ASEAN countries were doing in terms of the relations with the U.S. and, of course, uh, the Quad as well, which, of course, involves India, the U.S., Japan, and Australia. Yes. Do you expect to see a different U.S. approach going forward as these concerns in the region continue to rise? Well, I think each country in China's periphery is trying to strike this very delicate balancing act, trying to reap all the benefits of continued engagement with China while taking sufficient measures to protect their sovereignty and independence. Uh, and, you know, for each country, it's a different balancing act. It's a different mix of threat perceptions vis-a-vis -vis China. It's a different level of economic engagement with China. Uh, they're facing different levels of Chinese influence over their domestic politics and different levels of 
uh, determination not to allow China a veto over their foreign policy. And so we have seen some sort of traditional internal and external balancing behavior among China, uh, weaker among ASEAN, among Southeast Asian countries, than we have seen among the Quad. And I think the U.S. wants to ensure that we're in a position to, you know, sort of facilitate stronger security ties with any of these countries that are interested in, in balancing more vigorously. And I think, frankly, we've done a good job in the last few years with the Quad, with not only reviving it, uh, but with upgrading it to the ministerial level, with adding new aspects to the Quad, like counterterrorism exercises. You know, now the Quad is involved in a, a COVID pandemic response uh, regular conference call, even though it's not technically a, a Quad initiative. But it's not, there hasn't been sort of this wave of balancing activity the, the way, you know, some sort of realist theorists might have predicted, in part because China has done a very effective job winning over elites all around its periphery and convincing them of the sort of economic benefits of remaining engaged with China, even in cases where the population, maybe in a country like the Philippines, you have a population, a national security establishment that's incredibly wary of continuing to move closer to China, but you have a group of elites that have been essentially captured. Uh, and when you can, when you're an autocracy that can sort of disperse benefits and and hand out a lot of economic incentives to small groups of elites, that can take you a long way in in region like Southeast Asia. So we, we do see some of this activity, some rising concerns about uh, Chinese behavior and some movement toward the U.S., but this constant balancing act, which, um, you know, particularly in Southeast Asia, may not be enough to secure their interests. India, of course, has been doing its own kind of balancing act. Of course, it's complicated by the fact that we have a boundary issue with China as well, and I think that as much as we are trying to keep the illusion of calm with China, that's a very deep strategic concern uh, for New Delhi. One lingering question for countries is, with the Trump administration, what is the U.S. commitment to the region? There has been some wariness that, is this an unpredictable Washington? Is this a Washington they can count on? What's your sense of hmm. that aspect uh, of insecurity among countries in the region as they look to navigate this balancing act? Well, I think there's a very broad consensus among the national security community, both Republican and Democrat in the U.S., that the Indo-Pacific is, in many ways, our most important theater, uh, certainly most important theater of competition with China. And the Trump administration, when you sort of review its most important national security strategy documents, national defense strategy, its Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, speeches and statements by all the senior officials, by military leaders, uh, paints a pretty clear picture that our priority is and will remain the Indo-Pacific. Uh, I understand why at times, you know, the president's rhetoric uh, can create some doubts and uncertainty. 
But when you look at sort of the broader sweep of U.S. foreign policy, the machinery of the state, Congress, the military, the national security community, and many of uh, the Trump administration's senior most officials and cabinet officials, I think they've all been very clear and uniform in underscoring America's commitment to the Indo-Pacific, that it's going to be enduring, that it's going to grow, and that the U.S. isn't going anywhere. Looking at the India-U.S. relationship, of course, it's far broader and far more significant than just the China factor. But of course, China is one element uh, of the India-U.S. relationship, shared concerns about China. Can you share your thoughts on how India-U.S. ties have been deepening of late, especially on the defense and security front, and your impression of how China may or may not drive that process? Sure. Uh, yeah. So I, I was able to travel to, uh, to India with President Trump, uh, well, alongside President Trump's visit in February. We were lucky to sneak that in, right? COVID pandemic really struck the rest of the world in, in earnest. And in preparation for that trip, I, I, I was doing a review of U.S.-India defense and strategic cooperation. And I, I made the case that it's been relatively quiet, uh, but it, it's, it's been remarkable the amount of progress the Modi and Trump administrations have made uh, in, over the last three years or so, in some ways outside of the headlines. And I won't sort of labor you with a, a comprehensive list, but if you just look at uh, the revival and upgrading of the Quad, the establishment of a two plus two foreign and defense ministers dialogue, the signing of Kamkasa, the likely signing of a, a Becca military agreement this year, the stationing of an um, Indian officer at CENTCOM, our first tri-service military exercise. We had a joint sail through the South China Sea. You had the Trump administration essentially revise uh, U.S. export control laws to put India in a a privileged category with with NATO and non key non NATO allies. Uh, you know, if I had a wish list of items to help strengthen the U.S. India strategic partnership before the Trump administration, I'd say they've done probably ninety percent of them, um, and not always to great fanfare. But these are sort of the quiet building blocks that will endure, I think, beyond the Trump emotions. These are the foundations of a 21st century strategic partnership. And so I give both governments uh, a lot of credit for moving on those questions, even while they were navigating trade friction. You know, that seemed to dominate the headlines of India-U.S. relations over the past year or two, their inability to reach even a modest trade deal. Um, and you know, that was newsworthy. Uh, it is significant, and it was disappointing that we were unable to do so. But while these negotiations were happening, there was a lot of progress being made on the defense side. Uh, and that's, you know, I would say in part a credit to some veterans in the Trump administration, like Ambassador Alice Wells, like Lisa Curtis at the National Security Council, um, as well as a new willingness in the Modi government to pursue alignment with the U.S., I think, in ways that uh, previous governments would have been quite reserved uh, or reluctant to do. I think the, the, the impetus to move closer to the United States has grown stronger 
and some of the historical baggage and these sort of philosophical reservations that prevented previous Indian governments from taking some of these concrete steps. Uh, I think the Modi government has, has moved past those in some ways, and it's carved out more space to do cooperative things with the United States under this framework of, of strategic autonomy. The historical baggage that you mentioned has been one lingering issue uh, in the India-US relationship. There is also the fact that even though there are shared concerns about China, there have been divergences on how best to deal with China. And of course, India has its own relationship with China, which has had a mix of cooperation and competition. Mm. In the past, US administrations have been somewhat sensitive to the limits of how far India would or wouldn't go to take on China, India, of course, not being a US ally. Do you think that has changed in any way with the Trump administration? No, I, I don't think it has. Uh, I, I, I think, look, we've now been at this for, it's been 15 years since the civil nuclear deal and the initial 10-year defense partnership. So, you know, across 15 years, I think Washington has been able to develop a more sound understanding of unique disposition, India's sensitivities, uh, India's complex relationship with China. So I think the sort of policy community here uh, isn't under major illusions about what India will or won't do vis-a-vis um, -vis China. Uh, it's been certainly encouraging when India has agreed to do things like upgrade the quad or engage in a joint sale with the US, Japan, and Philippines through the South China Sea. But I haven't been given any indication that they're frustrated with India. One final question, Jeff. We are headed into an election year. A lot of the changes in the US-China front have been seen to be a result of the Trump administration. On the other hand, it does appear to be emerging as a bipartisan consensus, as you just mentioned earlier, in terms of how to deal with China. So is this U.S. approach to China here to stay? I do believe so, yes. And I, I think you can really trace this back to the end of the second Obama administration. Uh, about halfway through President Obama's second term, I think you could notice a shift uh, among the president himself, but also the sort of center-left national security establishment, where there's a sense that they, they had tried their best at engagement with China and ultimately were frustrated by the results. Now, this, of course, also paralleled a, a change in Chinese foreign policy. So it was over the course of both terms of the Obama administration that China's behavior grew uh, substantially more assertive. And so that led to, I think, a rethinking um, on both sides of the aisle about U.S. policy toward China, about what benefits engagement had actually wrought, and sort of a reckoning um, and an understanding that maybe it would require a more competitive relationship with China to secure our interests and to protect the international order. And I think that bipartisan consensus has not only held, but sharpened over the past few years. There are certainly parts of the democratic establishment that are uncomfortable with some of the things the Trump administration is doing with China. And I think we're likely to see candidate 
Biden uh, trying to create some space with President Trump. Uh, we've already seen attack ads from both sides on the China question. But I don't think that President Biden or a Biden administration would mark a, a, a fundamentally different approach to China. They're, they're not arguing that the Trump administration has uh, attacked China too, too much. They're not arguing that the Trump administration has been wrong to try to correct several imbalances in the U.S.-China relationship. You know, things like tariffs and the trade war have traditionally been more of a, a platform of the democratic establishment, which has, uh, you know, big labor as one of their top constituencies. Uh, it's, it's members of the democratic grassroots that have been complaining for years about Chinese labor practices, about uh, unfair uh, trade and investment practices. And so I, I really struggle to, to uh, envision a scenario in which either a future Democratic or Republican administration swings back hard toward this sort of engagement first, toward this thinking that uh, we can eventually bring China into the international community as a responsible stakeholder and through engagement, China will become more like us politically and economically. I think that that view, which really was dominant for decades in Washington, uh, has, has largely been abandoned among both parties. So the competition is here to stay and is likely to intensify. The contours of that competition might change under different administrations. The points of emphasis might change under different administrations. But uh, the political establishment in Washington, and I should note the American people. If you look at polling, uh, in fact, just this month, Pew released uh, a new poll, and negative opinions toward China were higher than I have ever seen them. Uh, it's now two-thirds disapproved, negative view of China, one-third approved. I mean, it was closer to 50-50 just a few years ago. And so something has shifted. There's clearly a change underway that I think will be lasting and, and is going to endure regardless of who's in the White House. Jeff Smith, a pleasure always talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Anand. Take care, my friend.